0: 23. We're going to read together the first 12 verses of this passage as we go through it this evening. So beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow, saying, uh, to accuse him saying we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar saying that he himself is Christ a king so Pilate asked him saying are you the king of the Jews and he answered him and said it is as you say then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd I find no fault in this man but they were the more fierce saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For before that, they had been at enmity with one another. Lord, as we go through this passage this evening, we trust that you will speak to us and minister to us and bless us. And just, Lord, give us understanding where there is none. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our frailty to pay attention and to just depend on you as you endeavor to to reach our, our thick heads and our hard hearts with just the truth. Jesus, of what you did for us and just how much our redemption cost. Speak to us this evening. Your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night when Jesus was being led to trial, he actually had six trials before different people. And these trials were all illegal. They were all uh, conducted in such a way that laws were broken In the previous chapter, chapter 22, we saw that Jesus had first been taken to Annas, who was one of the high priests, and then a second trial before Caiaphas, who was one of the high priests, and then he was taken before the Sanhedrin. And when he was taken before the Sanhedrin, it's interesting that in the Talmud, which is part of what governed how they did things, it was not scripture but it was their own sort of law books, if you will, that helped them decide how to administer justice. According to the Talmud in capital cases, they were uh, cases, excuse me, in capital cases, cases were prohibited from being heard at night. So they couldn't hold night court and, and sentence someone the same day. They had to have at least a day between the hearing and the sentencing. And the reason for this was actually very noble. It was to be delayed at least one day to permit mercy to rise up in the hearts of those passing judgment. But of course, they had no interest in doing that with Jesus. But I think it's interesting that as we consider that, that this sort of obscure law in the Talmud would apply to us as well, wouldn't it? How quickly we judge, how quickly... We want to see some type of justice taken place over whatever it is that has offended us. And in this case, of course, uh, they were supposed to wait and, and give an opportunity for mercy to develop in their hearts. But they had no interest in that because they hated Jesus with, with such a vehemence. And then we come into Luke chapter 23, verse 1. We're entering the fourth trial before Pilate. And so we see in verse 1, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And in verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. So of course, one of the ways they could ingratiate themselves to the Roman rulers was to cook up charges against him that said he was coming against Rome, and that his intent was to usurp Rome, to overthrow Rome, to become an insurrectionist. And of course, none of those things were true of Jesus. He had no interest in overtaking Rome at that time. He was there to share the love of God with people. And as Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. But in doing so, of course, people began to follow Jesus. And in people following Jesus, they got jealous because people were leaving them to follow him. And because their eyes were blinded and they didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah right before their eyes, they had to come up with ways to kill him because their source of income was drying up, their following was drying up. They were keeping people captive to the law, insisting that they were the only ones who knew how to read the Bible and to interpret it and to bring the law to people. Jesus, of course, came to bring God the Father to people you remember that Jesus said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus was there to do the, the right thing, the noble thing. He was there to reveal God to people. They were there to keep God from people. And that's a good way for us to understand things when we look out across the religious landscape today. Our people... Uh, churches, ministries, are they there to bring people to Jesus? And that's their only thrust, their only goal, their only care. or Are they there to bring people to their ministry so that they can build their kingdom and have a wonderful little kingdom on the earth? It's always only about Jesus. It's never about the pastor or the church or the ministry. And it's always telling to me when people put their names on their ministries, It shows us what their ministries are truly about, which is themselves. When they said here that Jesus was perverting the nation, other translations said that he was misleading the nation. And they were implying that Jesus was leading the people away from Caesar and Roman rule. Another way of saying this would be that he was creating a subversion. He was creating civil unrest and that he was a threat to the peace of the the government. Clearly, Jesus never said or did such a thing. They also said that Jesus was forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Again, they lied and twisted Jesus' words. If we go back to Acts chapter 20 just a little bit, we can see the actual words that Jesus said that they twisted to say what they said. In Luke chapter 20, verse 20, it says, "...they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous." that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Let's stop there for a moment. When people have come, and we've probably all unfortunately encountered people like this, where they just pick on your words, they nitpick, they seize on your words. And they try to win the argument to say, you know, well, you said this, what did you mean by that? And they just take it to a level that makes your head hurt. I've been through, unfortunately, too many of those situations in my life, both in the professional workplace as well as within the church. And when you're interacting with a person like that, I think the best thing to say is, God bless you, have a nice day, and turn and walk away. Because they're not interested in what you have to say, they're only interested in winning some argument. So these people were there to watch Jesus, to listen to him, and to seize on his words, to twist his words. And it says, in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the, of the governor, Luke chapter 20, continuing in verse 21, then they asked him, saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. This is all in mockery. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was their question. That was their entrapment. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. So they pulled a coin out of their pocket. Just think of it like a silver dollar if anybody's ever seen one of those. Not too many exist these days. I collect them, by the way. He said, show me a denarius whose image and inscription is on that denarius. And they answered and they said, Caesar's. And he said, then render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So they took that incident and they twisted it to say, he told people not to pay taxes to Caesar. When in fact, he said quite the opposite. He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar." People get caught up in what shouldn't I do and how should I stand against the government and all the unreasonable things they're doing. They said, look, don't worry about that, essentially. You be concerned about what belongs to God. You give to God what belongs to him, what is rightfully his. Then they said that he, he himself said he is a Messiah, he is a king. Well, he did say he was a king, but not a king like an earthly king, not like a Caesar they use this to try to strike fear in Pallate, excuse me, Pilate and the others, the other rulers, in order to make them think that Jesus could be here trying to raise up his own kingdom and to create an insurrection. Now, something to point out here is that these people were clearly acting under the influence of Satan. Now, how do we know that? Because the name Satan means adversary. And we know that the scriptures tell us that he is a liar. And the chief of lies, he is an accuser of the brethren. And everything that is happening here this evening in the life of Jesus is people accusing him of things that are not true. They are simply employing the methods of the devil to reach their ends. So in verse 3 of Luke 23, Pilate asked him, saying, Are you indeed the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him and said, it is as you say, I am the king of the Jews. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Why did he say that? I think he wasn't taking Jesus seriously. In fact, I think he was looking at him as the king of the Jews. (laughs) They're under our rule. And you think you're making yourself out to be a king? So Pilate just looked and said, I... I don't find any fault in this guy. He's a harmless lunatic. What can he do? But they were the more fierce in verse 5 saying, He stirs up the people teaching all throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place, implying that Jesus has a widespread influence that you know nothing about. And he indeed did. But it was in sharing the love of God and the kingdom of God with people that was his influence. And so... They thought he was going to attack Rome. They thought he was going to try to come against their rule and their reign. So in verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. Then he said, well, you know, hey, Herod's here. Let's send him over to Herod and see if Herod can deal with him. So now trial number five, illegal trial, comes to pass. And he's sent over to Herod's jurisdiction Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. And in verse 8, now when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad. He thought, well, I've heard about this guy. And he was treating him a bit like a court jester or maybe a magician. Someone that he thought, hey, I could use some entertainment. This will be cool. Hey, guys, come around. We got a a jester. We got a magician coming into our midst. Let's see what he's going to do for us. And so he questioned Jesus with many words but Jesus answered him nothing. Now it's interesting looking back in Luke 13 this was a sort of an exchange between Jesus and Herod from a distance. And in Luke 13:31 picking it up there it says on that very day some Pharisees came saying to Jesus get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Thinking of course they were doing Jesus a favor. Jesus said, you go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following it, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Remember, Herod murdered John the baptizer. He had his head served up on a platter. Now, Herod's exceedingly glad to see Jesus. Who knows if Herod got that word? But if he did, it sounds like he certainly wasn't grieved by it or angered by it. In fact, he was probably amused by it. And so in verse 10, we said the chief priests and the scribes stood by and they vehemently accused Jesus. When they saw that Herod was really unimpressed and that he was getting no answers from Jesus, They try to stir the pot. And then Herod, verse 11, with his men of war, treated Jesus with contempt and they mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So they're like, we're all done here. You go back to Pilate, I'm not dealing with this. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at enmity with one another. I've always in my mind written beside this verse, strange bedfellows how a common enemy can all of a sudden unify enemies. And these men who really hated one another, they were in competition with one another, they began to unite around the idea of coming against Jesus. So if we put this in context and think about all of Jesus' life, as he has been living on the earth and ministering and teaching the word of God, people were constantly coming against him. And the reason I bring that up is this, that so often we hear people saying that, hey man, if God's in it, you know, things are just going to be smooth, they're going to be hunky-dory, there's going to be no issues, It's going to be smooth sailing for you. God wants you to be happy. But if, like Jesus, we are about the will of our Father, then we will have the same kind of results that Jesus had. There will be some who hear and believe and who get saved and who want to follow God. But consequently, there will be many who come against you because they hate God and they hate His Word. And there will be opposition and there will be people who want your head, who hate you, who come against you, who think that you have come to spread things that are evil. I don't know if you've heard in the news just this week there's a lady who is a Christian, or she is a Christian, I should say. I've I, I got the story mixed up in my mind if she was in Oregon or Washington. But she wanted to adopt a couple of kids, give them a stable home. This is in the news just this week. And because the state in its guidelines told her she had to sign this paper that in it said, you must vow that you will not prevent your kids from converting or becoming transgender to the other sex other than what they're assigned at birth. And you won't stand in the way of that. You'll allow your kids to make those decisions, even as kids. And she refused to sign it, obviously, because it's the wrong thing to do. And yet they came against her, and now they're making a mockery of her for taking a stand for Christ all because she wanted to do something that was, in our eyes, and in much of society's eyes, as an honorable thing. She wanted to adopt some kids and give them a good home. So the world, the flesh, and the devil come against us, just as they came against Jesus. So in verse 13 of Luke 23, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said to them, you've brought this man to me. As one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Can't really find anything wrong with him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. He's going to chastise them just to sort of appease them, but he really he was deserving of nothing. Verse 17, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. That was their practice, to take someone who was in prison or under some kind of charges and to release him back to the people at the time of the feast. as sort of an act of goodwill as a gesture. And they all cried out at once saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city for and for murder. So this man didn't only create the insurrection that they were accusing Jesus of, but he had murdered someone. And so they say, give us Barabbas, take this man and crucify him. Even though under the courts of law that were illegally held at night, they could find no problem with him. So these were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, Barabbas, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. John, in his gospel, records seven times that Pilate went out and came back to to the people Clearly, Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus. You'll find this in John chapter 18 and 19. Pilate declared Jesus not guilty after three many trials in his presence, yet they still crucified him. Luke leaves out the detail of the scourging found in Matthew, Mark, and John. But when Pilate sought to release him, and of course the Jews came against him, he took Jesus and had him scourged. To scourge, in case you aren't aware, is to take something akin to a little club and put several whips into it and then to make it hurt really bad, to press little pieces of stone or glass, sharp shards of instruments into that that leather. So they would take it and hammer it in so that it wouldn't come out. And then imagine the scourging the beating with that whip, with those little pieces of glass and stone in, and as they beat Jesus, as they scourged him, its intent was to inflict pain upon the recipient. In fact, it was used in their mind as a method of cross-examining someone, and that their desire was to beat out of the witness a confession, And in so doing, they would write down, they had a court stenographer there, and as they beat that person, when the person finally said, I'll confess to anything, just please stop. And they said, you must confess to this, whatever the crime was. And even if that person was innocent, and they were not interested in the innocence of the individual, they would beat that person until he confessed. And after he confessed, they said, see, we solved another crime. There were no cold cases under Roman rule. So in verse 26, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. The other gospels tell us that as Jesus was now being driven toward the hill of Golgotha, Mount Calvary, that he was so weak from the loss of blood and from the beating and from the pain, that they had to Basically, press someone else into service to bear that crossbeam of the cross, and this wasn't the entire cross. The, the the vertical piece, as we see here behind us, was up on the hill, and they would take the crossbeam, and they would take make the the cross uh, the person bear that part of the cross and carry it up to the hill, and then they would nail the person to that part of the cross and nail that crossbeam called the patibulum to the cross itself and so they drafted this man Simon of Cyrene and they were now taking him up to the hill of Golgotha to Mount Calvary and a great multitude of the people followed him verse 27 and women who also mourned and lamented him were there but Jesus turning to them said daughters of Jerusalem do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. And it's interesting how Jesus is always wanting to, to teach and to share God's word with people. He's clearly referring to the time in 70 AD when the Romans would come in and destroy Jerusalem. Yet how would they ever understand that in that moment? Yet Jesus was telling them so that they would one day Remember those words. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us for they do these things in the green. If they do these things in the green wood, what will will be done in the dry? For there were uh, two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. So these three men now are being led up to the place called Calvary. And it says in verse 33, and there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. So as they took him there, that was at this point they were trying to give him the sour wine as an anesthetic to ease his pain a bit, but when they had come there and they gave him that wine minked with gall to drink, he refused it. Jesus was refusing pain medication at the moment when anyone, if anyone needed pain medication, was at that moment. Why is that? Why would Jesus do such a thing? I believe it's because he wanted to feel the weight of the sin. Because he knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it would make no sense to him to reduce that pain. Because he needed to feel everything. Isaiah 53 says... Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And in verse 34, as Jesus has been nailed to the cross and he's been hoisted up, and when they crucified, of course, if you didn't know this, when they crucified a person, they would stretch their arms out almost to the point of being out of socket. And they would put the bones through their wrist, through that part of the bone that's sort of like a U-shape right there, so that the weight of the body would rest on those nails as they went through the wrist. Then, of course, they gave him just enough a slack that he would bend his knees. This was their Their terrible, excruciating method for for killing people, their form of capital punishment. And they did that so that he could pull himself up on those nails and get a breath because they would pull him and stretch him in such a way that his rib cage would collapse and it would be difficult to breathe. And as Jesus is going through this, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Can you imagine? feeling that pain, going through it, knowing that you as the Lamb of God are there to take on the sin of the entire world, not just a couple of people who hate your guts. Every person who ever has lived, who is living, and who ever will live until the end of the age, you're taking on the sin of the world. And it said, and they divided his garments and cast lots. There's so many prophecies being fulfilled here from the Old Testament that foretold that these things would happen of the Messiah. But as Jesus said this to his accusers and to his crucifiers, as he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. What he's saying is that they, the criminals who crucified him, didn't understand that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. They didn't understand that the one who was their Messiah that they were putting to death, that they unwittingly were being used by God to bring about the salvation of the entire world. And one of the first things we need to hear, and we'll talk about this more on Sunday, is that you, that I, that we have been forgiven. Do you realize that counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists, their offices today are filled with people who can't forgive because of things other people did to them, perhaps of things they did to someone else? Have you been forgiven? Have you forgiven others like this? You see, our sin makes us stupid. It really does. Because we truly don't know what we're doing. We may have this this attitude of self-righteousness toward people and toward situations, but there's only one righteous judge, and it's not me, it's not you. And my sense of right and wrong, and my sense of morality, and my sense of how I've been wrong or you've been wronged, or someone else has been wronged. You see, God is the one that they've offended. You think I've been offended or you've been offended, but God is the one who's been offended first and foremost. It's the reason Jesus had to come. We must forgive just as we have been forgiven. Colossians 3, Paul wrote these words, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. That's compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, Meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. In other words, we do not have a right to withhold forgiveness from someone whom God has already forgiven. Hopefully you see how that's wrong, how that's not okay. So the people stood there verse 35 looking on. Even the rulers with them sneered saying, "He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, if he's the chosen of God." The soldiers mocked him. They came and they offered him some sour wine and saying, "If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you really are God, you should be able to take care of this, no problem." And the inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Another gospel said they came and said, no, 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 you did it wrong. Don't say he's the king of the Jews. He's not our king. Say that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were there hanged beside him, blasphemed him saying, if you were the Christ, save yourself and us. That's convenient. Save us. But the other man, the other criminal, answered, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, even a little bit? Seeing that you're under the same condemnation, we're all three under the same condemnation, we're being put to death. We're going to die here shortly, in a few minutes or hours. For indeed, justly, we received the due reward of our deeds, verse 41. But this man has done nothing wrong. Even this criminal, in his sin, in his crime, whatever his crime was, he realized that Jesus was innocent. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, please. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. A while back, I played here during a sermon, a video from Alistair Begg. And if you've ever seen it, it is such a powerful video where he's relating this story. And as he's telling the story, he takes up the story with this thief on the cross being at the gate of heaven. And the angel who's there to let him in says, now, wait a minute, I don't see your name on here. I, I, th- I don't think you're at the right place. And he says, oh, well, I'm supposed to be here. This is where I was sent. And he starts to quiz him and he starts to ask him questions and he's like, why are you here? Who told you? I? Well, this is where I was sent. So he goes and he gets his supervisor angel and he comes in and he says, all right, now just a few questions before we let you in. Can you explain to us the doctrine of justification by faith? To ask these high and these lofty minded questions, he says, look, all I know is the man on the middle cross said I could come. And that's the only right answer. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Now Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m., Around noon, this darkness came over the whole earth until the ninth hour, which would have been six, excuse me, 3 p.m. in their reckoning of the day. And then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus is quoting from the Psalms, from Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So when the centurion, verse 47, saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. You see, Jesus' words were already coming to pass in John 12, which said, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself, meaning he would secure the salvation of people. So this man was so impressed with what he had just seen and the way that Jesus died and the things that he had said, that he understood that this was indeed the Lord of glory. This was the Messiah, that this this was an innocent man and a righteous man. And he understood in that moment who he was, that he was the Messiah of God. Verse 48, and the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. For the people who were there watching, they, they, some of them began to realize who he was and they, it, would, it would seem they began to believe in him. But all his acquaintances, verse 49, and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man. We know this is Joseph of Arimathea. And he had not consented to their decision. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. He was one of those few righteous men. And you know, God always has one or two people. He always has a faithful remnant somewhere. So this man went into Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus because he knew on that day it was the Passover and he wanted to get the body of Jesus down before dusk, before the day change and before the Passover meal needed to be eaten. So he went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. He was granted that request in verse 53. He took it down, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. And this was the day, the the day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So what is the point you may be saying of this account of Jesus's death that we have found here in Luke's gospel? Jesus was unfairly and unjustly treated and tried by both the Israelites and the Jewish leaders, the Romans. They broke every law in their book in order to get Jesus condemned. And they killed him on the same day. They didn't even follow their own laws to wait a day to allow mercy to arise in their hearts. And notice as we read these accounts, these gospel accounts of how Jesus was crucified, We can read them from the point of view of saying he was taken into custody. There was an army of men literally who came and they took him out of the garden. We're told that there was probably somewhere between 700 and 1,000 men understanding the terms they used of, of the squad of people who came. All to get one man. And we could look at this and say Jesus was taken into custody. Jesus had no choice. He was forced through this trial by the hand of man. But Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 17, and I quote, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. See, Jesus wasn't taken captive by a bunch of wild and crazy guys. He allowed everything that happened. In other words, Jesus was the sovereign Lord. He willingly laid down his life. He did it because of love. You see, the purposes of God could not be defeated by the schemes of men. Remember that the next time you're facing an impossible situation. God is bigger than you, than me, than our circumstances, than the things that we face. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 takes this scenario and, and it's being told there by Peter And it says, him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Why was it not possible? Because he was the Son of God. Because he laid down his life on his own, and he said there again in John chapter 10, I lay it down and I take it back up. Now, we only saw a few of the sayings, the things that Jesus said from the cross, but let me just read them to you here as we close this evening. Jesus said in this account that we read tonight, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Number two, today you shall be with me in paradise that he said to the thief on the cross. In John 19, Jesus looked down at his mother who was there and said, Woman, behold your son. Not speaking of himself, but speaking of John the apostle who was going to take care of his mother as Jesus, of course, finished his ministry and was resurrected and ascended into heaven. And then while Jesus was on the cross and the the height of the day when the darkness came and when the weight of the world, when the sin, the wrath of God was being poured out on the sin of mankind on Jesus Christ, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then again, in John 19, he came to that point of saying, I thirst where his humanity had broken and the thirst that he felt was just prior to dying. The dehydration, and then two verses later in John nineteen thirty, he says, "It is finished." To tell us, And then he cries out those last words, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And we're told at that point that's when the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now, why did that happen? Because the veil in the temple was something like an eighteen-inch-thick tapestry, such so roughly the thickness of that pole over there in the middle of the room. No man, no human being could, could tear that. But in that moment when Jesus cried out and he gave up his spirit to God the Father, that veil, we're told, was rent in two from top to bottom. And it was as if, and I believe this is what happened in my own heart, that God took his hand and he cut it like a knife. And he. Part of that veil. Now, why did he do that? Because that was the veil that separated the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the priest went in once a year to sacrifice the blood of the Lamb and to sprinkle it on the top of the mercy seat, which was the, the lid of the Ark of the, of the Covenant, so that God would look down and see the, the sins of the people covered by the blood of the innocent Lamb. Why was it rent into? The book of Hebrews tells us that it was done because that's an enactment of the the ark and the, the most holy place in heaven. And so when that veil was torn into, again by I believe, the hand of God, it was showing us and symbolizing us that we no longer needed a priest. This is a part of what the book of Hebrews is about. We no longer needed a priest, we need no longer needed to go through a man, through an agency. We, need, we now can walk directly into the presence of God by the blood of Christ. This is the gospel. That we now have free access to God the Father, to the very throne of God because of what Jesus did. It's interesting to note that Jesus was crucified between two thieves and they each had equal access to the gospel and to the Savior, but only one believed and the other did not. It's also interesting to note that it took God the six, six days to finish the work of creation in the book of Genesis, but it only took God six hours on the cross to finish the work of salvation, to redeem mankind from his sin. Six days of creation, six hours of redemption. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to sing this verse in a few minutes. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why God did it. That we could become the righteousness of God. It blows my mind to think of that. We all know as we sit here this evening our own sin. We know the attitudes of our heart. We know the vileness that's inside of us. And yet God has redeemed us. God has loved us. He loved us before we ever knew who he was. Paul tells us that we were formed in our mother's womb before the foundation of the earth. Our names were written in the book of God. He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Why? Because God wanted the relationship with you and with me. That's why he did it. Hebrews 12 tells us this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, isn't this crazy after everything we just read? Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down now at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Well, we're to look to Jesus and what he endured on the cross so that we don't become discouraged, so that we don't grow weary. This same passage, Hebrews 11 and 12, go on to tell us that we have not yet resisted in our struggle against sin to the point of shedding blood, of, of striving to the point of bloodshed. Why? Because no matter how harshly we're treated, it'll never be as bad as what Jesus went through. J.C. Ryle, who is one of my favorite people who writes on the gospel, said, Patience like that, which our blessed Lord exhibited on this occasion, should teach his professing people a mighty lesson, that we should forbear all murmuring and complaining and irritation of spirit when we are ill-treated by the world. What are the occasional insults to which we have yet, excuse me, which we have to submit compared to the insults which were heaped upon our master? Yet when he was reviled, he reviled not. When he suffered, he threatened not. He left us an example that we should walk in his steps. Let us go and do likewise. Peter wrote, out of this experience of seeing Jesus crucified in 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Praise God, it is finished. You don't have to do anything. You can't earn it, you can never deserve it. You just believe and receive. And you are forgiven. And you now have free access into the throne room of God because Jesus himself tore that veil so you can walk right in. And as it were, you can sit on your father's lap and speak with him and have fellowship with him. Why? Because of Jesus. Because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. How amazing is that? We're going to pray uh, the men in the back are going to play a song for us. Uh, Jim's going to pass out the elements and we're going to partake of communion together. So Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this message. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us and God help us to believe and to trust. And Lord tonight, if we're already a a person who believes and has received, then, then strengthen us Lord and encourage us this evening. And Lord, if there are some here listening who have never believed, who've never trusted, then we pray in this moment that you might just fall upon them, Lord, and give them that faith they need to believe and that they would just draw near to you in this moment and say, yes, Jesus, I want to be forgiven. I want to draw near to you. And would you put your arms around them and draw them near and let them know that they are now your child and that they are the beloved. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.